there's a really interesting researcher in Helsinki who's doing research on Finns in London. She thinks the point of integration is when you stop buying medicine and cosmetics in your home country. You're listening to The Swedish Podcast, hosted by Jill Leckie and Kat Trigarski in conversations about the paradox of life between two cultures. Hello Kat, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm good. Quite a bit of pollen in the air, so uh, that's, uh, that's not ideal, but uh, taking all the tablets, using all the nose sprays, using all the eye drops, going to get through it. Yes. Yeah, it is that time of year in Sweden where we are deluged with um, copious amounts of different types of pollen, which, um, and for me, uh, the worst one is uh, Bjork, which is today. Mm -hmm. I'm touching my nose furiously all the time, so I can't be allowed to be outside with anybody or else they'll freak out and think I've got COVID. (laughs) We don't have time to list all the tree pollen that I'm allergic to. (laughs) (laughs) If a tree has pollen, I'm pretty much allergic to it. So this week, um, we are revisiting an old pod that I did in 2018. But it was a conversation that I had with Natasha Webster, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Stockholm University in the Human Geography Department. Um, And I I really wanted to discuss immigration and its meaning in an academic sense. So, So I could really understand what it means to be an immigrant in this 21st century world. And little did I know that the conversation would lead me to have some pretty outstanding aha moments about how we perceive immigration, how we view immigration, um, and how immigration is represented in media, in institutions, politicians, etc. So it's a it's a conversation that I thought was worthy of being re-edited. So we asked Cecile to take a look at the original podcast and have a listen to it and re-edit it and uh yeah i thought it would be a useful thing to revisit yeah i think it was a uh it was a particularly good conversation to illustrate what life is like Mm. how it works here from an academic point of view Mm -hmm. you and i had discussed this as well that uh the bit about which groups of people settle down into life in in sweden the Mm. most i guess you would say successfully i thought that was particularly interesting you know that's what we want to do is we want to represent immigration in a much more intersectional and um, diverse way. I really hope that we as a podcast can generate that feeling too. So I really hope that you enjoy this conversation that I had with Natasha Webster. Um, There are some things that are referred to in the podcast which are kind of dated now because of the conversation at the time. But other than that, the red thread that goes through the conversation is still as relevant today as it was back then. Happy listening. So thank you, Natasha, for being here today and talking to us. I really appreciate it. First of all, before we get started, what's your origin story? How did you come to be in Sweden? Thanks, Jill, for having me. My origin story, I think, is probably not that different from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, My husband got a job uh, here in Sweden, and we made the decision to, to come here. And we had thought at the time that it would be a short year or so in Sweden, but now we've been here coming up 11 years. That's, I think, fairly common among mm-hmm. people's stories, but I'm originally from, from Canada. 
When I was working in Toronto, I had done uh, a master's of urban planning, and then I started to work as a planner okay. in Canada. So I was working on issues of uh, literacy, so adult literacy and integration and sort of community services. My position was basically looking at how different organizations that support communities come together. Okay. So it was like, what kind of services does this community need? Who are the people living in this community? Where are they not getting services? So I suppose community infrastructure. Yeah, community, like social infrastructure. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So it was a range of things from like adults who don't know how to read. Can they get a place to learn how to read and become literate? But also questions of like, what is it like to move through a large city when you can't read? Can you use the metro system? for example. And then also working very closely with integration services, because of course, one aspect of that was new immigrants coming in. New language. New languages. So you that's a really interesting kind of entry point for you, because you had a pre-understanding of integration services mm-hmm. and, you know, how, what it's like, obviously from a different perspective, though, but what it's like for somebody, mm-hmm. an immigrant, to come in at that entry point and, and kind of start all over. So yeah. that's a little bit of an advantage, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it was an advantage. I mean, I, I walked off the plane and I knew to go to the SFE Centrum. Yeah. And I knew where to go. And I walked in and I kind of had this, I felt like I was meeting colleagues. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think they thought they were <laughs> 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 meeting a colleague. Um I very quickly realized that I was just going to be a student, which I was fine with. How did you find that experience? I was, did it live up to the expectations that you wanted to, you had, had for it? No. And I found it very frustrating to sit as a student, but I also found it frustrating as someone who had kind of spent a lot of time evaluating these kind of programs yeah. and, and being part of that. And yeah. I found it very frustrating when I tried to talk to the management of the school and when I tried to explain a little bit where I was coming from. I mean, they didn't really understand that I had done this in Toronto. They weren't receptive uh, to my knowledge of how this should work or Mm. different kind of concerns. Mm. And there were all sorts of issues that came up. But I finished SFE and then I went and I got... Good for you. Congratulations. Not very many people do. It was a a challenge. And then I went to work as a four-school class, a kindergarten teacher. In a school um, in suburban Stockholm. Then I saw an advertisement for a PhD position here at Stockholm University in the Department of Human Geography. And doing a PhD was something I had always thought about. Um, So I just applied. I thought, okay. And then I got the position. And that kind of changed things because suddenly it was like, well, it's five years and you you get a good salary here in Sweden because the system you're paid as a PhD candidate Mm, mm. and you get your benefits Mm, and mm. um, it kind of turned more into a win-win it was no longer I wasn't working towards something for Mm -hmm. me I was suddenly had something of my own yeah and that kind of changed a lot Mm -hmm. the tables Mm -hmm. even though I'm not working as a planner um, it felt like I was steering back towards what you really wanted what I wanted to do and it was certainly steered back into I was doing something for me Mm -hmm. not just something to like earn Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. money or mm-hmm. sort of fill my days which I was sort of feeling before you've kind of used that experience mm-hmm. that you had in what you're doing now yes. in the research that you're doing now so tell us a little bit about what that is and yeah the significance of it so like I said I'm at the department of human geography 
And here we have a research profile called migration. Um, so I sort of sit myself as a migration researcher. I've always been very interested in in the processes of how people move and how mm. they experience movement in all sorts of different ways. And then I have always been a feminist and very interested in women's experiences. Um, how do women experience that that movement? Because one thing about migration theory is that it always sort of assumes a neutral body or a neutral person is moving. Mm. And by neutral, they generally mean a male yeah. body. So when we think about those experiences, they're generally done from a masculine perspective yeah. or a male sort of neutral normative body. And that just didn't really sit with my experience. Mm. I, I know as someone who's traveled a lot that being a woman really has shaped that experience. And I also knew from my own experience and sort of other people I met that being a woman was making our experiences very different. Mm. So I was really interested in that question, like how do women experience migration and like how does that shape their day-to-day -day mm. integration? Mm. Um, so that was kind of one of the central questions I asked in, in my PhD. Like if we bring a, a gender perspective or a feminist perspective to migration, does it change the way we think about migration or does it change the way we think about integration and, and these kind of questions? And so in my PhD, I was part of a project which was called When the World Goes Rural. And that was a very general project, like looking at migration in the Swedish countryside, yeah. uh, which there hadn't been a lot of research done. And so I knew I wanted to do something on gender. I was pretty sure I wanted to do something on entrepreneurship because mm -hmm. it was something that was really interesting to me and I think serves as a really interesting proxy for understanding integration. And I quickly discovered that there were a lot of Thai women living in the Swedish countryside. And I was very interested in the narratives around Thai women migration. So when I started asking people, you know, why are there so many Thai women here? And the answer was very, I guess, negative stereotypes. I'm guessing the negative narrative was... Yeah, the stereotype that they're sex workers. Bought over. They're either bought or they're marriages of convenience. Yeah. Um, there's sort of a contradiction because on one hand, they're sort of victims of this system. On the other hand, they're kind of conniving. And, and then, of course, a lot of stereotypes about their husbands, too. You know, that they, they can't get Swedish wives. They can't handle so-called modern women. These kind of stereotype. So I was just very curious. It can't possibly be that everybody is and also, okay, say that is true. What does that imply for how we understand migration and how they then integrate into society? So I kind of went from sort of questioning that to doing interviews with Thai women living in rural areas and they were entrepreneurs. So I sort of focused on their day to day. Like, how do they come into a community? How does that work or not work? Mm. How do they build their own communities? Mm. And what do they need to feel good? in in these areas mm. and then also what is it like to be a migrant woman starting a business yeah and Thai women are actually really interesting because after five years in Sweden they have the same employment levels as native-born Swedish women so they have one of the best labor market integration rates of all immigrants wow yeah so after five years they're on par um, that's incredible how, yeah how like what is the secret and what does it mean Right? This group that's doing really well. And I'm always curious in groups that are doing well, how are they navigating the system? Yeah. And what's working? Because I think then we can learn as much from what works as what, yeah, what doesn't work. Yeah. And I think that's really important in understanding integration is to see and identify groups that are working uh -huh. and not just always focus on sort of the segregated neighborhoods or these, you know, problematic, agree with you more. problematic groups. And because we understand some of those mechanisms quite well. Mm. 
So we need to also understand what works. That way we can lift all groups up and really help yeah. each other. Mm. So that's what I did through my, my PhD research. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that was really interesting about Thai women that I found in my research that I don't think anyone knew before was that a lot of the women who are entrepreneurs here in Sweden were entrepreneurs before. So they had had businesses uh, in Thailand. Mm. They weren't being entrepreneurs for the first time, but when they were meeting services, the assumption was is that they weren't, that they didn't know how to run a business. They didn't know how to do these sort of tasks because a lot of these stereotypes, that, yeah. but actually a lot were very highly skilled business people mm. and had made businesses in very competitive yeah. environments. Mm. And what they needed was not so much the story of how to run a business, because they had that. They had mm. maybe run five shops or something <laughs> in Thailand. But what they needed to understand was like, how does the tax structure work? Exactly. What are the health regulations? What are the consequences if I don't follow those? Employment law. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, And how do I employ people? And these sort of very kind of boring but pragmatic questions that make the difference of whether your business is going to succeed or not. And now I'm finished my PhD and I have a new project called Opportunity and Obstacles in migrant women's entrepreneurship, uncovering resources and talents. Mm-hmm. So what I'm really interested in is kind of building on that idea that migrants are are coming with all these skills and resources, which are completely not recognized here. Mm. And so the assumption is kind of when migrants meet services that they don't have a lot of these experiences, like yeah. the Thai women who have run a business for yeah. 15 years, for example. Yeah. Um, and how do we take those resources that are often hidden in the questions that they get asked when they meet different services and make sure that there are ways for those to come out like, oh, you've done all these things. Yeah. Let's make sure we use your skills and, mm. and resources. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm going through that particular journey myself mm-hmm. of being a foreign born woman starting a business. Unlike those incredible Thai women, I have no experience building a business. <laughs> so I can, I can, you know, I'm very much winging this by myself. But I think what you said is so true to reality. This, this, this notion that there are these huge gaps in what is being offered mm-hmm. to women in particular mm-hmm. um, uh, coming here from different countries um, because of some strange stereotype. Is it almost institutionalized racism or, or sexism? You know, I was doing, I was writing a piece for a contribution that I'm doing to mm-hmm. a book and desperately trying to get my hands on some academic research or even policy that had been written about foreign-born women entering the job market Mm -hmm. in Sweden Mm -hmm. or having their own businesses. And there was nothing Mm -hmm. apart from the the work that you'd done. Mm -hmm. And that in itself spoke volumes to me about how little understood this whole phenomenon is Mm -hmm. of, you know, migration from a female perspective. There's very little. I think we have two things in terms of the research that make it difficult. One is economic research tends to, if they look at men and women, they tend to look at men and women as sort of very tight categories. So like in the box, the sort of gender as sex, so male, female. Uh Um, But generally, when we talk about a lot of these strategies, they go back to that neutral character that I was talking about. Which takes on a male. Which takes on a male perspective. Mm So like if we look at entrepreneurship, for example, Mm. generally when we think of what is an entrepreneur or who is an entrepreneur, we think of male characters. I mean, we can think of like just here, like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. And we maybe, maybe we'll think of Martha Stewart or something, but you know, like 
there's a lot of this sort of masculinization of this economic practice yeah. and it goes largely unquestioned uh-huh. and a lot of when where women are doing entrepreneurship it gets categorized as small business yeah so one of the things for example I show in my research is that we need to think more broadly about what activities are entrepreneurial um, and there is some research, for example, that shows like entrepreneurship is defined within sort of male-led industry. So we look at tech and all of these things, mm. innovation, and how we use those terms are often in this sort of masculinized mm. language. Mm. And when we talk about what women do, it's small business and therefore not as interesting because it doesn't sort of fit with the current discourse of what mm. kind of mm. cities we want to be. I yeah. mean, nobody wants to be the city of small businesses. Yeah. Right. We want to be the city of entrepreneurship and innovation. Mm-hmm. And those aren't really neutral terms. Mm-hmm. Those have a lot of meaning in, be- in behind them. What, what do we make up in that? So we have that on the one hand, sort of how we look at economic practices. But then when it comes to migration, we also have that package. So it's hard to bring together anyway, yeah. you know, these different terms. Yeah. So I think women are kind of falling out of the loop. They're just kind of assumed as yeah. part, not really doing much interesting in that mm-hmm. part, mm-hmm. or that they'll they'll find work somewhere and it's in the three c's it's yeah cooking caring yeah. cleaning, cleaning. <laughs> <laughs> but then when we think about if you have a nice cleaning business mm. you're not really considered an entrepreneur no you're considered a small business which i think is wrong mm. because it is a lot of work yeah to start that kind of business and you yeah. have to be very creative you know, you have to get clients, you have to build trust, mm-hmm. all of these things. Mm-hmm. I think it's a way of, like you said, this institutionalized sexism and, and racism very much shapes how we talk about whose activities yeah. are entrepreneurship or whose activities are interesting. Mm-hmm. And we need to talk about it more. I mean, I often, when, when I was doing this um, piece of writing, you know, my, my conclusion came about was, was that particularly when it comes to the integration process, which has been established in Sweden, There had been so much focus placed on, and I'm doing air quotes here, the deviant male, Mm. i.e. the bad immigrant who's coming Mm. over to, you know, steal everybody's money and jobs, Mm -hmm. that it seemed like female immigrants had been forgotten about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There'd been absolutely no focus on the particular gender needs of Mm -hmm. that, you know, that immigrant again a lot of it was to do with you know the the role of of a carer Mm -hmm. how do you integrate somebody who is caring 24 hours a day for either a family Mm -hmm. or relatives the systems and processes that were in place just did not take that role into consideration no so it was a real that for me was a bit of a whoa eye-opener mm-hmm. and then of course when that female immigrant was in a position to start the integration process well for a start she was maybe two years behind a male immigrant um even longer in some cases but then she'd kind of fallen off the bandwagon as it were of the mm-hmm. the, the, the the skills the transferable mm-hmm. skills mm-hmm. role which then meant that she was automatically placed in the three c's category yeah yeah. by the public services or and none of her previous life skills life experience was was even she, in some cases she wasn't even asked about it mm. so it shocked me in some ways I felt a bit quite justified because all of the experiences that I had had 
and that my um, and friends and acquaintances had had were suddenly made sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then when we wanted to get into that that process, learning the language, getting a job, that kind of integration process, we we suddenly found ourselves back at the beginning of our mm-hmm. careers, yeah. fifteen years behind. We know that when you have a baby and you stay home for a year or a year and a half or whatever length, that that has impacts on on your career. Mm. But then when you add on the extra layers of being a migrant, like in the language skills, having your degrees or your education from other places, it just, I mean, I don't know what the estimate, but it, I think it like quadruples those mm. Mm. those sort of experiences. Because mm. not only do you have a gap in your CV from your carrying responsibilities, mm. which everybody mm. does, mm. but then you also have these additional mm. additional mm. gaps mm. on top mm. of mm. on top of things. Mm. I mean, do you think that if you're a woman and you're a mother, then you just have to put up with that? Do you think it's as simple as that? No, because I think there's gaps and there's gaps. I think like if you have uh, a local CV, like say you have a degree from, you know, the economy school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a gap. Well, that just looks like the normal narrative of a, of a life course. Mm. Mm. But I think when you combine that with maybe gaps and especially migrants move a lot. So mm. it's not just maybe one gap, the mm. gap you had here, mm. but you might have multiple mm. gaps. Because I think one thing that is problematic also when we conceive of migration, it assumes that one person has moved from point A mm-hmm. and then they move to B. Mm. But that's not really how people migrate anymore, no. right? They yeah. move A to B to C and then maybe back to B yeah, and then to E. And so people, especially women who are who have moved with their partners Mm. have multiple gaps or very strange I use the term strange loosely but they don't have this nice linear linear career path you know I started at the bank as a as a teller and then I moved up to floor manager and then I did this yeah yeah, yeah. like if we look at my CV I worked as a planner and then I went and worked as a teacher in a kindergarten (laughs) and then I went and worked for a, a technical yeah company. I mean, those were really outliers. Mm-hmm. And they do look weird on my CV now. Mm. I guess that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, there's this other, there's this whole other dimension to this. You know, there's, there's, there's migrants, which is a good way of describing the sort of umbrella, yeah. you know. And then under that umbrella, there's immigrants, there's expats, mm-hmm. there's you know, refugees, there's asylum seekers. I guess, you know, in some ways, there's a justification for having those silos of nicely you know Mm -hmm. fitted in but then within those like I consider myself an immigrant Mm -hmm. because I moved here with my Swedish partner Mm -hmm. to live here indefinitely yeah I'm the same I I just wonder if the policies and the processes that are in place now no longer serve that are they're no longer fit for purpose or serve the purpose of how migration happens today Mm -hmm. we live in such a transient and nomadic Mm. way Mm -hmm. because of well that's just the 21st century and technology's allowed us to do that and and there's also you know people are fleeing from from their lives in Mm -hmm. so many Mm -hmm. different ways this whole anti-immigration attitude kind of just seems archaic Mm -hmm. I get the people, they're scared. I understand that because change is really scary. And, mm. and, and seeing somebody who looks different and who talks differently mm-hmm. and who has different 
traditions and rituals and, and, and a culture is, is, is scary and they're coming to your country. Mm-hmm. But this is where I lose the, the, the rationality yeah. <laughs> and the academic kind of mindset yeah, and, and just go off on this kind of very heartfelt, like, you know, I understand, like, I come from an island too. I get it, you know. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. get why people are so terrified about the change. influx of in, you know of, my, of my migration and change and you know cultural change and what they see as a, a risk to their identity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but at the same time that's been happening for the last 500 600 yeah. years <laughs> i think it's really important and we talk like i teach a course here called migration and global processes and that's what we start off with is that migration is nothing new Mm. this is not a new story but there is new stories in the speed yeah in which people can move yeah the flexibility in which people are moving Mm. and the changes in how people understand like if we take a very simple like 1890s kind of narrative Mm. when you migrated you left say you left some farm in Skona Mm. And you went to Canada. That was it, more or less. Because it took six months. It took six months and you sent letters. You know, maybe you got a letter once or twice a year. Yeah. And I mean, yes, there was some return migration. You know, there were some back and forth and things like that. It's exactly the same from my my country, you know, from Scotland. The Highland clearances happened. Mm Mm-hmm. And we all moved to Canada. Yeah, that's where I'm. I'm the granddaughter of of, of Scottish immigrants from that who went to Canada at that exact time. Yeah. And, um, I mean, they didn't go back. And so the way in which that was happening sort of set some of the tone for how we understand integration, which is a, not this kind of back and forth process. Mm. And this, as I was saying earlier, migration is A to B. Yeah. But now we don't migrate like that. And they really challenge a lot of our notions of the nation state, which is a fixed. Absolutely kind of bounded territorialized yeah it's because it's, it's I, all tied up in identity and ritual and tradition and exactly and, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly so then you get stuck with these kind of lags in what we're doing mm. and how we understand the mm. world around us and so it is really tricky to talk about migration as it's happening today when we're still thinking about migration as sort of this very linear process and also yeah. very like sort of heteronormative in that it's a male leading a family and mm. off they go mm. and that I mean there's all sorts of different ways in which people mm. migrate and mm. trying to compensate that and then you have like legal structures and services and all of these things so it's really really hard and complicated to figure out how yeah. how to handle there hasn't been a period of such mm. social unrest for about 50 mm. years like mm. since the 60s and all those mm. movements that were I really feel it's like we're the Sweden is at cross purposes. Yeah, and, and I think really lots of, of countries are. There's so much going on in terms of sort of responding to changes in economics, like our yeah. econ- like our economic systems are really changing. Mm-hmm. Our mm-hmm. welfare state, like the way we conceive and understand that, is really changing. Mm-hmm. People are moving yeah. <laughs> like all over the place. Nobody's yeah. staying where they're supposed to. This is a crazy thing because there are more Swedes leaving Sweden than ever before. Mm. So there's not okay. just people coming in, there's people going. going out. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is one of the biggest problems as well. Is that this is why I was talking about this cross purposes thing. You know, on the one hand, you, we've got 
a, a huge proportion of Sweden going, no, we don't want any more migrants. Mm. We're done. Mm. You know, and if you want to migrate here, there are certain things that you need to do before you're allowed to to be here. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then on the other hand, you know, public services are going. We need migrants. Mm-hmm. We need people from foreign-born countries to come here and work so that we can maintain our cradle-to-grave welfare system. Yes. Yeah, and those uh, are those contradictions it's, it's just like, that are it's, happening. It's very confusing and it's very hard to to understand. And that's what I'm hoping to find out a little bit more in the research. Like, how yeah. do you deal in the welfare state with these, exactly as you said, these mm. contradictions between, on one hand, we need people, mm. we need labor, mm. we know that we can't, especially in rural areas, we know that this village can't survive mm. without people coming. You know, we, if we want to run a school, we need children. Yeah. <laughs> to go to it and those sort of things and on the other hand this other rhetoric of not wanting more migrants and Mm. and I don't know how that'll resolve itself yeah because we do see a polarization absolutely in in those debates and we see polarization in societies and Mm. and it's not just in Sweden it's in all sorts of sure all sorts of like I think it's part of this bigger global Mm. you know Mm. we're we're feeling the effects of you know, a lot of neoliberal policies that came into the 80s. And yeah. I mean, migration on one hand is loosening. It's never been kind of easier to move, mm-hmm. but it's also getting harder and harder. It, 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 in one ways, I, I think about it like this. It's the, the migration itself is becoming easier, but it is the integration that is becoming harder. That's an interesting thing to think about. The thing that um, gets my chest all puffed up at the moment is when Swedish politicians are, you know, banging the drum of, if you don't speak the language, then you're not getting any welfare. And I'm just Mm. like, if these politicians just lived for one day Mm. in a migrant's shoes, trying to learn the language, trying to get a job, trying to care for their family, my God, they would make it easier. Because yeah. that person is probably going to be paying taxes. So I, it just, it seems like a really easy shot to make. I think it's an interesting debate around how integration is understood. And I think it's often discussed by politicians as in something that like has happened. Like one day you're integrated. Yeah. And, but, it just, it's and it's just like yeah. that. But I think integration is very much, very much a process. Mm. And there are different ways people are integrated and feel integrated in yeah. different sort of ways. So a lot of the time, like politicians will talk about like this first job as kind of being the key. You have to get that first job. But what does that mean? I'm starting to do some research on the gig economy, right? Mm. And that's kind of interesting because that could be construed as a first job, but you're completely locked out of the social welfare state system. You're locked out of any benefits. So is that integration? Mm. Is that when people feel... Yeah integrated and then there's the social when do you feel socially part of the society Mm. you're living in Mm. or when do you feel part of sort of these public debates or do you Mm. feel like you're actively part Mm. of them they're all different stages there's a lot of our listeners and readers and followers and so on who have lived in uh, Sweden for many years um, who have Swedish family Mm -hmm. but they don't have a job and Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily speak the language. Mm -hmm. So does that mean they're integrated or not? I guess by definition. I guess by definition, no. no, Right. But that's where you get that contradiction between sort of formal 
definitions of this integration, right? And, the, and then because, our feelings. I yeah. mean, if you've lived here and you have a community and exactly. a nice life, maybe you really are yeah. integrated. And you're contributing into to, to society in other ways as a community leader or as a, you know... You know person I, raising citizens. Yeah. Um, those sort of things. So I, I think it is worth, especially as researchers, to sort of question what is integration. There's a really interesting researcher in Helsinki who's doing research on Finns in London mm. and how they understand their mm. their integration processes and what kind of things do they they talk about. Mm. And uh, she thinks the point of integration is when you stop buying medicine and cosmetics in your home country. Okay. Um, she felt like this was the measure <laughs> that when you felt that you could go to your local pharmacy uh-huh in your new country and get what all the things you needed and were satisfied with those you I, I were would, integrated i would say as well um you know you're integrated when you can buy all of your baby products mm-hmm. from your local store yeah and not have them shipped over from yeah. <laughs> by a family member yeah but i thought when she when she was talking about that i was like i thought she was really nailing it on the head because yeah. that meant that you were you knew the products, mm-hmm. right? You knew where to get them. Mm-hmm. You knew your community well enough. You could probably read all the labels. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I thought, yeah, that's a really interesting... There was a trust and a... A trust in your look, like in that product. Yeah. A trust in the system that mm-hmm. this was of good quality. Because often when you interview uh, migrants, they often like our products from home are better. Yeah. You know, you have that. Yeah. Yeah. And we've all been there. I mean, yeah, I will, yeah. you know, I... I I load up on sanitary pads in Canada and I bring them back, <laughs> you know, like these kind of things um, I think that we all relate to. Uh-huh. So I thought it was like, that's a really interesting way to conceive integration. Now, I don't think a policymaker <laughs> would, go, would go for that. But I thought it was a really nice way of sort of thinking about because it was very social yeah the social but it also had this economic how you wanted to spend your resources how can you give people a resource that replaces something from home mm-hmm. and especially when you are in the situation of you're caring for a young family you're trying to set up a new home you're dealing with a lot of administration you're trying to figure out new systems of bureaucracy and all that kind of stuff like that. And all you want is something that is a home comfort or mm-hmm, that is exactly. like a home product. Mm-hmm. Going out there and looking for like-for-like like services, businesses. I think that's a really important thing about understanding migration is that it's a like a corporal experience. It's yeah. our bodies are moving and our bodies enjoy certain tastes of food and feels mm, and mm. it's not neutral migration Mm. is not a neutral Mm. process Mm. and so Mm. it's perfectly normal to long for those comforts of Mm. home and Mm. those comforts of food and Mm -hmm. beauty products and we you know sanitary pads that are Mm. the same or tampons that are the same those kind of very bodily functions Mm. are really really important and need to be understood as part of the migration process you don't it shouldn't be that you should ex- be expected to give up all of those. Mm. I think when you become, when you come here in different circumstances, it's so traumatic because you don't have that time mm. to adjust mm. to changing all of these these yeah. things. It happens very fast. Yeah, that's one of the questions that I really want to answer. Is is you know, is learning the language and getting a job the end of integration? And um, I, I believe no, it's not. No. It's not as cut and dry as that. No, I don't think so. As a my own experience, have a job. Yeah. Very comfortable job. Nice speak Swedish. 
I have a Swedish citizenship. Mm. I mean, I love Sweden. I love living here. I have mm. a really nice life. You pay taxes. I pay taxes. But if you were to ask me where home is, I'll still say Canada. Really? I mean, home is actually home. I mean, here yeah. where my family yeah. is and things. Okay. But like, um, and I feel very much at, at home. Yeah. I feel comfortable with home. Yeah. But the go-to response is still sometimes you know, that's where my mom is that's yeah, you know they sort of like this emotional connection yeah. connection and I don't have a burning desire yeah. to return no. to, to live there no I like my life here mm. but I even as someone who is fully integrated in the formal sense that process is still happening mm-hmm. home is still another place mm. even mm. if it's not hasn't been home for 11 years mm. in the physical sense that's why I kind of get really offended by the word assimilation because it does insinuate this you must drop your identity. Yeah. yeah. Ah. Assimilation is a very special theoretical concept and some countries have adopted that as their model of it, of, yeah. of integration. Yeah. So we can have integration a little bit on the top and then assimilation is one way in which yeah. to go about yeah. that. And it, yeah, I mean, I think... Assimilation is very much too based on that old migration pattern, mm-hmm. A to B. Doesn't work in contemporary migration. Yeah, yeah. and I think yeah. for well, I think for me it's just yeah, it's about maintaining one's identity and one's one's own traditions and cultures and and and, uh, and rituals. Which is much more the multicultural. Yeah. Model. Where, yeah. Like there's different ways I of think, yeah of being uh-huh. in togetherness. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's really important when we talk about migration is to recognize how many different stories there are out there and how many different experiences they are and how they are all important and everybody's journey is really important that we need us it's not as monochromatic it's not monochromatic and it's complex and people are complex and society is complex Mm. and these are really hard Mm. questions and Mm. i think be wary of very fast solutions yeah um, being offered and expectations that they're that the answers are easy mm-hmm. that they're they're not easy and they haven't been historically easy mm-hmm. you know there's mm-hmm. been long long processes the government is taking a, a monochromatic approach to this and is, is predominantly focusing on north african asian groups mm. The colour of people's skin is actually what is driving a lot of the discourse and rhetoric. I think that a different sort of racialized language yeah. around migrants is definitely yeah. playing a role. And I think it's difficult to talk about. It, you know, these are, mm. these are hard terms to discuss. But I also think that it needs to be acknowledged that that's part of the... Yeah part of the discourse and the way in which groups are understood Mm -hmm. and sort of confronting Mm -hmm. different sorts of racism and sexism Mm -hmm. uh, in the system is really important Mm -hmm. to to Mm -hmm. understanding that but I think it's also really important to understand within that that race is a social construct yeah absolutely and that how we understand race also really changes so I think it's difficult conversations that need to be Mm, need to be had and I think those are really important yeah. conversations and that's like, like we we had discussed before the multicultural center mm-hmm. i mean i think they are leaders in sort of taking those debates in the swedish yeah. context yeah um there's another organization um amphi which is a education center mm-hmm. uh, they make films for teachers and things like okay. how do you talk about racism and mm. things in the classroom i think mm. do some really neat work as well mm-hmm. um for mm-hmm. sort of discussing these issues we will put those links up 
on the website attached to the podcast that you suggested. Okay, sure. Center, it centres in um, Amphi. Amphi, yes. Amphi, because yeah. I, think, I think it's really useful for people to have resources at hand that can... Yeah, that explain really well. And I think what's yeah. really nice about those is that they're the Swedish context. Mm. Um, because a lot of our race literature, for like at least for researchers, comes out of the American context. Mm. And that's a very different context from the Swedish. Yeah. So it's nice to have Swedish literature yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for an amazing chat. Well, thank you so much it for was, having us. It's um, really fun. <laughs> yeah. I hope um, you invite me back. <laughs> well, I'm sure we will. Well, if you've made it this far in listening to this podcast, uh, congratulations, you deserve a prize. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, please do continue to listen in to us. And uh, we're, we're back now on the reg, as it were. And um, you can follow us on Instagram at the underscore Swede underscore ish. And you can also now find us on Facebook, um, uh, the Swedish podcast on Facebook. Please do check us out there and link to us. Um, and if you can, wherever you listen to us, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Acast, please do rate and review, even if it's a one star and you hate it. It just means that people find us better. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we are hoping, or I am hoping, that we are going to start to do a little bit more um, lives in some context. Possibly not Instagram. We might have to find a better platform to do it on, um, so that we can have kind of live conversations and include you guys in them too. Um, cats looking at me, going what? <laughs> cats looking at you, going not Clubhouse. No, 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 no. We're not going to be using Clubhouse. We are not going to be using Clubhouse. We've made that. That's that's been vetoed and democratically vetoed amongst all of us. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, I think people want to see our faces. That's what they want. <laughs> Not today. Maybe after Poland season. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Um, and uh, we will be back again soon. Ta-da. Bye.